Hey, welcome to the Punk Rock Academy podcast. How you doing, Dave? I'm brilliant, John. And how you doing? Well, I'm fine. Um, the day after England lost the uh, the Euro finals, so I'm a little bit upset, more upset about what's happened since. But let's not delve into that because we've just had a very good chat with um, with Larry Livermore, um, who some of you may know as the founder of Lookout Records. Dave, how was the chat for you? I thought it was inspirational. I saw Larry a few years back when he came over to do his um, book tour at How to Ruin Record Label, and he just kind of filled in all the gaps uh, for me. But yeah, Lookout Records, Operation Ivy, Green Day, he, he, what he brought onto the world. Brilliant. Great chat. What do you think, John? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> do you know what? I love the fact that we, um, I didn't realise he had such a, such a fascinating um, story before Lookout Records, which which we kind of go into in quite a bit. But he's got a very philosophical outlook, and I think we could have touched maybe more on it. But that was that's maybe for another podcast. Um, but have a listen. He he does get into a lot of a lot of deep stuff, which I love. Um, go on, Dave. Let's just let's just kind of go straight to the point here. What's your favourite Lookout Record release of the many many greats that there have been? Operation Ivy. Next, <laughs> which one? <laughs> energy. It's, it's it's the one. Well, I say energy. It's, it's the compilation album, really, of all the Operation Ivy. So yeah, it's it's, it's that. Classic. It is. It's a classic. It inspired a generation, a, a host of other wannabe scar punk bands who have done great jobs. But yeah, Operation Ivy. They're the ones who pretty much lay down a marker for all things scar punk in this modern day. How about you, John? Yeah, I mean, I love that. Um, I went through a really big Crimp Shrine 15 phase, Jeff Ott's band, and um, the 15 album, Swain's First Bike Ride, um, I just love. I think that's such a such a brilliant, under, underrated album. Um, so I'm going to do that. I'm going to say Swain's, Swain's First Bike Ride by 15. It's my favourite Lookout Records release. There you go. It's on record. Cool. <laughs> so shall we begin the conversation yep hey hey larry oh how you doing hello hello so you're david and you're john and i've not met either of you before have i, I have met you once oh, when you came when you came over to london probably about four years ago maybe you're doing your book tour oh with uh at all ages records yeah um that wasn't it was in um south south london oh in the diy for london that's right yeah oh yeah, yeah. That was a really good, really good read. Thank you very much for that. It was fantastic. And your book was... That was, a, that was a wonderful day, that was. Yeah, it was. Have you been back to England since? Oh, I've been back until the epidemic. I, I, I usually came out at least a couple times a year. Well, you know, I lived there for, for 10 years. Yeah. And I, I, so we've got a lot of mutual friends, Larry. And uh, I said to Dave before, before we jumped on the call that you and Dave McManus used to go down Fulham together, didn't you? Well, to be to be perfectly frank, I went before he did, but he's got almost as much service as I have. <laughs> he started going with his dad towards the end of the last century, and I had started going a year or so earlier. Uh, but we both suffered our uh, fair share of heartbreak and a little bit of triumph. What well, we got to let, let's skip straight to the football. Let's just bypass the punk rock chat altogether. How how did you get into football, and how why Fulham? I actually wrote an article once. There used to be an underground uh, fanzine at Fulham called uh, Where Were You When We Were Shit? <laughs> it was, uh, it was, these two uh, blokes started publishing it when we started going up the table after almost going out of the league altogether. And I wrote an article explaining it. And it's a, it's a 
kind of a stupid explanation, but really in the early 90s, when I first started spending a lot of time in England, I noticed that all of my friends from the punk scene and from everywhere else, they pretty much all had an interest in football, which I wasn't used to because in the U.S. at that time, you know, punks weren't supposed to like sports uh, or anything that was organized or, or uniforms or anything. So it, it took me a while to get used to it, but I realized if I was going to hang around with this lot, that I'd probably sooner or later have to get a team. And uh, my friend Aiden took me to see uh, Leighton Orient, and, and it, was, uh, it was really dreary. It was the middle of winter, uh, <laughs> nil-nil. Um, I just cannot understand why all these people would stand out there freezing death to watch nothing happen. <laughs> then my brother-in-law took me to see uh, Wimbledon v. Everton, and it was much the same, another nil-nil. <laughs> no, the, they were both trying to stay up and avoid relegation. So I thought, well, I don't know about this sport. But then um, I started following it a bit on the television and, and in, in the papers, and one day I was just wandering along down by the river, and, and I saw the stadium, the Craven Cottage. And for some reason, it was open, so I was able to just wander in. And I said, well, wow, this is a really special place. As you may, as you may know, the, one of the terraces goes back to the 19th century. It's a listed landmark, and it's just got a lot of history. It had a, a feel to it, and it's right there on the banks of the river. It's, uh, and I said, I think maybe I'll check this one out. And so I looked in the paper, and there was a, a match that weekend. And I didn't know anything about the team. I, I didn't realize it was a FA Cup preliminary or anything. I just went and they Fulham won four 0 against Barnsley, and so I said, "This is now this is exciting. This is a good team, even though they were in the second division and struggling." But uh, yeah, and that was the beginning of it. Uh, within a year or two, I was following them all over the country, and you know, getting really, really uh, happy and really, really upset. But I did get to watch going all the way up to the Premiership and to see a lot of really great players and some, some awful ones as well. Um, I mean, you've seen, you've been there, I guess it will be ups and downs, like European journey. I mean, I, I, um, I used to watch Fulham back in the old Division 4 when I first started going to football. And then my team, I, I'm a Grimsby Town fan. And we had a I've been there. Have you? You've been at Blundell Park? Um, yes. Uh, the last, our last uh, match of the, uh, well, I guess what they were calling it then was the first division, or I, I can't remember, they keep changing division the Division one but, or something, yeah. Yeah, division one. The la uh, um, our last match there was, was Grimsy be away. And I said, well, I'm going to go to honor because hopefully we're not coming back down to this division because <laughs> we're going up to Premiership the next season. And I did not know that uh, I, I took the train to, to Grimsby and got off not realizing that the, the ground was, was 10 miles away from Cleethorpe. So. And, uh, and it was just really dire. I mean, Grimsby's not the most scenic place. Uh, even even its diehard defenders will have to admit that. I mean, I am... Um... My family all left Grimsby, but um, the supporting of the club unfortunately stayed with us, which um, was even worse than supporting Fulham at times. But, you know, we love it, don't we? We love, we love, we, we have to celebrate the good and the bad. Always had a soft spot for, for, for Grimsby, uh, I, you know, what they're up against and all. I, I literally had to walk all the way to Cleethorpes <laughs> and also had, I'd forgotten it was a bank holiday weekend. So I had to, to beg and plead somebody to, to let me a room. It was like really none to be had. And, I really suffered, and then and Grimsby won uh, the match one nil, but that's that's kind of I, I kind of admired them for that, uh, you know, even though it was an end of season kind of meaningless match, they they put their heart into it, 
and it's for a long time they stayed up in the in the, in the first in Division One, and uh, you know for a smallish kind of city, that, that's an accomplishment. So how you been keeping over lockdown then, Larry? Well, it's not been the worst. It's not been the best either. I spent the uh, first five months of of the pandemic. I happened to be in Singapore at the time that it was it started, and they t- tended to run things a bit better than the Americans did in that. I mean, they both put the same kind of things in practice, wear a mask and all, but the Singaporeans actually enforced it, where the Americans are like, well, if you feel like wearing a mask, we wear one, and if you don't, well, what, you know, whatever, it's freedom, you know, that's America. And so naturally, an awful lot of people have died here, uh, more than any other country in the world. Uh, I think, unfortunately, England has kind of uh, copied our, our approach. Um, yeah. Yeah, uh, but I was in Singapore for the worst of it when it was when it was really bad in New York. And since I've been back in New York, which is just about a year now, it's just an ongoing. I mean, this will sound really maybe patronizing, but just kind of an ongoing nuisance because you know I and pretty much everyone I know has been vaccinated. It's just that you know we'd all like life to get back to normal, but I don't anticipate that happening anytime soon, no matter how, what we want or wish for. So, you know, I hope I'm wrong. I hope everything gets better quickly, but it's been going on quite a while. Yes, yeah, it's, um, it's worrying times here too. What, what was life like? What, what were you up to either professionally or musically or in a football sense before <laughs> the pandemic? What, what, was, what, was, what would going back to normal look like for you? For the last few years, I've been spending most of my time studying history, language and uh, culture and traveling. I mean, it's kind of like going back to university without the university. Um, so, and I've been spending at least half of each year in, in Asia, primarily in, in China, Hong Kong, and, and Singapore, uh, but also in uh, Japan and Korea, just trying to learn as much as I can about a different way of living. And, you know, I think that you, you really get a sense of perspective uh, when you. This this I've told this story before, but hopefully you you guys haven't heard it. But um, when I was when I was a lot younger, and the first astronauts went out into space, and took the first pictures of the planet Earth. Now all my life I'd been taught that the Earth was round and it was just a ball floating in space, but until you actually saw those photos, it didn't you didn't really completely compute. You know you you could intellectually say yes the, the world's a round ball, but until the until those guys went out there and said, "Oh, that's that's us down there," uh, then it's a a whole different level of understanding. And I have found that both with travel to other countries or cultures, but also with especially with learning other languages, because you can never really master or even become fluent at all in another language until you manage to put yourself into their mindset mm. and think a little bit like a Frenchman or a Chinese person and uh, and then suddenly you understand your own culture that much better. You say, oh, that's how they see Americans, or that's how they see British people, and it's very different than how we see ourselves, but there's some value to what they see and as well as to what we see. And So it's it's been a, a really wonderful process. Uh, I feel really fortunate to have been able to do this. Um, you know, it's kind of my next act after punk rock music business i guess that's amazing so what country have you know has been the biggest culture and difference for you uh well well china i would say almost certainly but i've been fascinated with china for 
almost 50 years ever since the Americans back in the 1970s started opening up, you know, opportunities to travel back and forth and, uh, you know, send book, books and movies and so on back and forth. My, my two most important places in the world are, are uh, for me personally, uh, are China and Greenland, which are not that similar. If I were told that I could only travel to two, two places the rest of my life, it would be those two. Well, China is pretty big, so you've got a lot of space to get around, haven't you? Yeah, no, China is like, and if I had to only pick one, of course, it would be China, because I've been up and down Greenland three times, and there, there's not a lot. I have not, well, short of the ice caps and uh, some of the northern settlements, there's not a lot I haven't at least cast, cast eyes on, whereas China, I could probably spend the rest of my life and still not see anywhere near all of it. So, so what, what languages are you fluent in? Obviously, you're a studious man. Uh, English, mostly English. Good. I'm still I'm, I'm still working on that, but I've gotten pretty good actually. I'm, I'm, without being vain, I think I can I can confidently say I'm not too bad at English. <laughs> All the rest of them are works in progress. Yeah, but I mean, obviously, we're a punk rock podcast. I would talk to you about travel and and culture all day but let's let's try and do a bit of both when you're in places particularly japan are you still are you still trying to discover new new bands and new punk rock music as well not really if it comes to me yeah great but no i'm i'm not the kind of culture i'm looking for is a a little bit broader ranging i i've found in general in other countries especially asian countries there will be punk almost everywhere you go but it tends to be kind of a, th- a little bit of a throwback. They, they, they tend to copy the styles that were popular in America or Britain like a long time ago. I mean, you, you can find kids that are still doing the Sid Vicious look and stuff like that. And it just doesn't, it doesn't speak to me the, in the same way that music did a few years ago when I felt like a lot of the bands and people that I knew were sort of on the cutting edge of the culture. They were really breaking new ground and exploring new new ideas they weren't just following a, a punk trend which you know I, I think it has to do with my age also having been through previous subcultures or countercultures I, like I was a greaser a young hoodlum in the early 60s and then a hippie in the late 60s and then a punk and so I tend to see all of these kind of rebellions as basically the same kind of energy just taking different forms in response to the times we live in uh so i'm i guess i'm trying to look for substance rather than than style and punk at this point i think is mostly a style it's funny you say that because thinking back to when i was around like 16 years old and i remember being really proud to introduce my friend's dad to rancid and i think it was like the let's go album and he was Uh he's like an old punk and he pretty much like people did saying oh this is i've heard this stuff before kind of you know because obviously he's from, a lad from the 70s obviously you've been around punk many years but have, have there been any like, new bands which you know, excite you still well i'll show i'll show my uh age again probably because the last band i got really excited about uh, have more or less broken up by now but they were they were a later band they were called the weaker lands from canada and uh, i followed them around the u.s canada and europe like kind of like uh, an earlier generation followed the Grateful Dead. Uh, I still didn't see enough of them. There's bands that come out now and again. There was a whole bunch of New York, uh, New Jersey, and Midwestern uh, pop-punk bands that came out in the 2000s and 2010s that for a while were really going great guns and putting on festivals and putting out records. And I liked a lot of those 
but I have to admit, in retrospect, a lot of it, I liked a lot of them because they were sort of carrying on the spirit of stuff that we had done before. You know, they, they sounded like lookout bands from the 90s. And they had a lot of the same attitude, but it was a different generation. And as, in fact, that, that scene had a lot to do with why I left London and moved to New York, because it was like in its heyday then. And I thought, well, this is really exciting. I want to be in with this. And, you know, I've kind of wondered ever since if I made the right decision, because I still miss London terribly. I mean, you know, it was a lifelong, not a lifelong, but ever since the 70s, I wanted to live there. And I was felt really happy that I was able to. Now, ironically, as fate would have it, you know, that was a brief burst of pop punk energy. And then most of those those kids that had those bands are now settled down, married with kids and doing the suburban life. And, you know, they still like the music, but it's not like central to their life. It's, it's an old uh, lifelong theme with me, it seems. It, like when I get really excited about something, and like, well, uh, Davey, you quoted Rancid, but what you're going to do when everyone moves on, goes on without you. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's kind of how a lot of my life has been. I will join this kind of really cool subculture, counterculture, whatever you want to call it. And then after a couple of years, I realized that everybody else is going on and doing other things. Uh, yeah, I thought I first noticed it when I was about 15 or 16 years old, and I belonged to this gang of young ruffians that hung around on street corner and being a nuisance to society. Uh, and, and at 16, they started. A lot of them started getting driving licenses and wanted to go off by themselves on with their girlfriend, or they got jobs to pay for their their cars and that sort of thing. And I was like, no, I still want to hang out on the street corner, and, you know, and talk a bunch of crap and try to harmonize on the latest doo wop songs and that sort of thing. So I, you know, I found a group of. Uh, of boys that were a couple of years younger and they were still doing that because they couldn't drive yet. And, and same thing happened again, of course. And <laughs> eventually it started, you know, well, eventually I, all of the greasers went away. I was one of the last ones standing like the last of the Buffalo. And that's when I thought, well, maybe I better go with these hippies instead. And what do you know? Same thing happens. And it's kind of like that with, with punk too. I mean, I'm still in touch with a lot of the, the punks that, I knew from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. They're younger than me, but often they often seem older. Yeah, I mean, I think I'm probably going to put my hands up and profess some sort of guilt. It's not, not, a, not a question of guilt. It wasn't, it's just that, I mean, I think I finally reached that level after a lot of trial and error where, yeah, I'm ready to go on and have a life that's not entirely based on rebellion or being obnoxious or, or having low self-esteem, which is basically what punk is about if you if you're honest Where, where's this sort of because obviously you, you talk about being on the street corners in the sort of late 60s and then moving on to being a, a, a hippie in the counterculture era and then obviously punk rock Where, where's this where's this rebellious streak born from well i was growing up in an area of detroit called down river which is called down river because everything flows down river including the pollution and basically it was all is very working class neighborhood a lot of immigrants and I was not very happy I didn't like the scene <laughs> the it was, you know Detroit was a at that time was a very prosperous manufacturing town um, in fact people came there from all over the country and from all over the world to work in the factories and so you know people could make a living there where they couldn't anywhere else so they were mostly happy and I was mostly unhappy I said I don't like this place and this was a um, the year I turned, I uh, was 13, 
Uh, I'm sure you've heard of the show West Side Story, the movie or the show. It's become a common fable. This is the second time it's been mentioned in our podcast, which is odd but great. It's a, it's a, it, it was a life-changing experience for me. Uh, the movie came out in 1961, uh, and it was meant to be a cautionary tale about, you know, don't fight and have gangs and fight with people who are different looking from you or, come, you know, that kind of thing. It was specifically, in that case, I think, between the Italians and the Puerto Ricans in, in New York. But I didn't get that. I, even though it's tragic and the guy, they die and all that, uh, I was like, this is so exciting. I got to go run through back alleys and get in knife fights and jump down fire escapes. I can't wait to do this. And so within, within week, I went to see it four times in a row just to memorize every detail. Within weeks, you know, maybe as, as of destiny, I ran into a bunch of other young ruffians. They were, I mean, we were, they were all 13. They weren't doing anything too terrible yet. They were like actually uh, pouring lighter fluid onto the water of a nearby stream uh, and trying to and setting the water on fire and thinking that was hilarious and doing little pranks like that. But uh, within a couple of years, I you know I'd fallen in with some real criminals, and it's like really really amazingly fortunate that I didn't end up like most of them, which is dead or in prison or in prison or both. I don't I don't know if any of them are still alive today. Wow. And what about? Um... I mean, obviously, West Side Story was is famed for its its soundtrack as much as the the kind of um, the violence that was portrayed in it. What was was that ever an attraction to you? What was the music? Were you into music before before that? What was the music that you were sort of growing up with at that point? Nineteen fifty four was the first music that I, I first became a music fan of on my own. Up until that, I just listened to whatever my parents listened to, which was. The, the greatest hits of the 90s, the 1890s, but uh, they, that's what they, they had been raised on. And so it was my music until the first doo-wop and, and rock and roll started coming out in the, in the early 50s. And it was, we didn't have television yet. Uh, I mean, people did, but our family didn't because we my father didn't approve of it and we were poor. So we had a great big radio that was the centerpiece of the family. and. Um, in, in lieu of a hearth or a fireplace, we had a, a big radio with a pull-out uh, record player. And I would, as a little boy, I would sit with my head leaning against it and flick the dial back and forth. And, and one day I ran across uh, a doo-wop song, and I'm not sure to this day, I want to think it was Earth Angel by the Penguins, which most people have heard, but it might have been another one by a, 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 a group of women called the Cordettes. Whatever it was, it instantly connected with me. I, it transported me to like another another planet almost. And so I basically, from that age, around age seven, I was just constantly searching the dial for more of those harmonies and, and more of that kind of deep soul kind of sound. And um, what at that time, uh, the America was so rigidly segregated that you never saw black people were not literally were not allowed to be on television or perform in white areas. So we would hear this music and we assumed it was all Italian, like uh, Italian guys with greasy hair and leather jackets like we had in our neighborhood because they used to hang out on the corner and harmonize the, the, the songs. And so we assumed that that's who all these guys on the radio were. It wasn't until I was much older that I was like, oh, the great majority of them were, were, were black. And, and and I didn't really know that until um, end of the 50s, beginning of the 60s, when 
that kind of morphed into to Motown, which was our first local yeah. music to really connect. Beach were a hotbed of music. That was such an amazing time to be in. As, as ugly and dirty as that city was, that was so, so amazing because it inspired everything I would do in the music business later. The fact that a bunch of people who were even poorer than I was and who had a lot more barriers to overcome like segregation and like really just a brutal kind of life they said the hell wait we're not going to wait around for the big talent scout to come to detroit and discover our our brilliant our brilliant groups because they're not going to come anyway nobody would ever start looking for talent in detroit so we'll just start our own record label and and we're going to make it for everybody not just for the underground not just for one race not it, they said literally on every label the their tagline was the sound of young America and you know all America and, and it worked it worked so amazingly that I've just I'm every time I think about it to this day I'm still in awe of how somebody could have had that vision and, and and make it happen and yeah I know you could go into some of the shady stuff that happened much later on but in those early days in the beginning of the 60s it was just so pure it was it was like you know, I didn't get that feeling again until the early days of Gilman Street because it was kind of that same feeling, a bunch of working class kids that nobody was ever going to pay attention to saying, well, nobody's, we'll just make our own scene. You know, obviously what happened in Detroit was much, much larger, but it was the same principle at work. Love that DIY ethic. Yeah, it's a very obvious um, sort of transition from from obviously what you saw and liked from that to, to obviously what you ended up doing how aware were you being in Detroit that this was on your doorstep and how involved were you getting in in that were you going to see could you see these acts were you sort of watching it my first my first show ever was was either the Supremes playing a, a free show in the park or uh, the MC5 playing in a battle of the bands in a, on, a, on a tennis court in in uh, Down River and it was within a few weeks of each other, and it was both the same, you know, in the same summer when I was about 17 or so, and I, or 16, I'm not really sure, but, you know, I, I just have no way of knowing which was first, but they were both like kind of the, the twin pillars of my early musical existence. I, I, I only wish that I had seen more of the Motown acts, and it was just laziness or stupidity that stopped me i mean it was a 10 cent bus ride down down to downtown detroit where most of them performed wow not a bad start but you know it's detroit's got a self-esteem problem it has always struggled with that i was just talking to somebody from cleveland yesterday which is kind of like a miniature detroit um about half the size but same basic setup and and we both like were laughing about how i you know, our, the, the essential Detroit or Cleveland attitude is, yeah, I'm from Detroit, what about it? <laughs> uh, yeah. And we you just always assume that nothing's going to work out and that that you know, no matter what a great idea you get, either somebody's going to steal it or somebody's going to wreck it. And, and, you know, that kind of creates this, you know, it's a very punk attitude, really, if you think about it. It's just like everybody's out to get me. Everybody's out to suppress me, so therefore I'm just going to ruin myself before or make myself obnoxious before they can reject me on, on their own. You know, I, I spent, I've spent a lot of years trying to get over that, and I, I doubt that I have completely. But, you know, I, even after I went to New York and California and to London, there was always a little bit of that in me. Like, that, oh, yeah, you, I know you're not going to take seriously what I'm doing, but 
Oh, I'll show you. I'll keep doing it anyway, no matter what. And so what? And so obviously you see the MC5 at the same time, and that's obviously seen as a, a you know, those guys are seen as a kind of blueprint for for what happened in terms of well, punk rock across both both sides of the channel, like uh, both sides of the uh, the Atlantic, um, and sort of set 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 across. And I know, I guess Iggy from the same sort of neck of the woods as well, do, doing something and setting that kind of blueprint for for a punk rock the future of what punk rock happened. So is that, was was it that moment was seeing MC5, was that, was that the moment you thought this is, this is for me, I can do, I can do this, I could play this sort of music? Not quite as much, but it had a, a profound effect on me, but a different kind. I mean, this is, bear in mind, this is like a baking hot summer day with no shade out in the middle of a tennis court in a kind of a backwater part of downriver. And it was a battle of the bands between them and one of, you know, every neighborhood had its own garage band, as we said, garage bands. Uh, and the MC5 were just one of them, and they were fighting the one from our neighborhood, which was called the, the Satellites. And we were supposed to all, of course, cheer for our, our you know, it's a bit like football. We had to cheer for our neighborhood team. But, um, you know, I immediately was more impressed with the MC5, and they, but they lost because home, home field uh, disadvantage. Uh, and but I talked to them, and what impressed me about them was that they acted and thought like rock stars long before they were, you know, they, they were just playing for like 30 people, at, kids at most, and they, but they dressed up and they carried themselves like stars. And, and they, the whole time my mind's going like, you can do that? You can like be from this kind of working class nowhere place and just suddenly transform yourself by how you think and act and carry yourself into a star so I mean they were they were a little bit pretentious they were not had not got yet got into their hippie phase or their revolution phase they were basically trying to copy some of the mod sounds from it from England which most of us didn't know anything about yet at that time they were ahead of the curve and I've told this story before so forgive me if you've heard it already but they I asked them what style of music they were playing and they said it's called Avon rock and I was like what the heck is that and I didn't want to betray my ignorance but I later found out that they had I thought maybe because they, they like English stuff and they dress they were wearing English style clothes it might have something to do with Shakespeare in Stratford-on-Avon uh, it turns out that they had seen the word avant-garde somewhere and but they didn't know how to pronounce it <laughs> so, and so they were having avant-rock but they called it avant-rock and <laughs> Um, it was cool. It made it made it sound like you know the fact that they had a name that nobody had ever heard of for their for their style. Um, that was that was pretty impressive. And it was it was about two years later when they fell in with uh, this hippie guy called John Sinclair, um, who basically kind of reshaped them into this revolutionary band. Which if you've ever seen the first MC5 record where they're it's all a diatribe about rock and roll dope fucking in the streets. We're going to overthrow the government, et cetera, et cetera. And the government took that seriously. Uh, John Sinclair wrote all of that. Uh, the band were just like, we just want to play music. <laughs> and we sort of believe it, but, you know, after a couple of years, they were like, well, maybe not. I don't know. So, I, you know, but the other thing about being a Detroit band, and the same, the Stooges suffered with the same problem, is that we didn't, Although we were very defensive about being from Detroit, we did not have a lot of self-esteem. We were 
kind of like, we'll fight anybody else that disses our town, but we won't have any respect for what our town produces, which means basically like, like every Sunday there was a free concert in the park and, and people would say, you going to the, the free show on Sunday? Oh, who's playing? Oh, it's just the five and the Stooges again. Uh, I don't know. You know, it was basically, they were just our, our dumb local bands. You know, we, they were okay, but nobody, I don't think anybody recognized them as like, this is the future of rock and roll or punk rock or anything. It was just like the local bands that, you know, you didn't expect that much of, but if you had nothing else to do, you'd go see them. Wow. Were you surprised then when, when it, when it did sort of happen for them and when they did become the future of sort of rock and roll? Well, by the time that they began to be considered important, like, uh, you know, by that time I was fully involved with punk and new wave and all that stuff. And, I, and you know, I could obviously connect the dots. I, I, you know, about in the seventies, late seventies, I was, you know, collecting a lot of records and going to a lot of shows. And I happened to put on the second MC5 record. And I'm like, oh, this fits right in, you know, back when we were still making compilation tapes back then. So I would put their songs in with a bunch of new wave songs. And were you still in Detroit then or were you? No, uh, I had left Detroit in a, kind of in a hurry. Actually, I left Detroit for Ann Arbor first, which is only about 40 miles, kind of like the difference between London and Brighton. You know, anyway, I was in Ann Arbor for a while and then things really got hectic. I had to beat it out of town in a hurry and found myself in New York and California. Although I bounced around for a few more years, eventually I settled in California for a very long period of time, which is when most of the stuff that people want to hear about happened during my California years. I mean, I think, I mean, we certainly want to, we want to touch upon it, but I'm, I'm really enjoying this, um, this side of things. Cause as you say, you've, you know, you've got the book out and I'm sure you've done enough of these podcasts where you've talked about the same sort of stuff, but by all means talk, but talk about whatever you want. But when you get to, um, when you get to California, then what, what's waiting for you? Is there, a, is there a scene already there? Is there a kind of DIY? Oh, when I got to California, it was still a hippie scene. The, the free shows in the park in California were basically the Grateful Dead and, and other bands of that like ilk. I've, I've seen the Grateful Dead, the, well, the three bands I've seen most are the Grateful Dead, Green Day, and the Weaker Thans, about 25 times each probably. And, and it was very similar, although the Grateful Dead were a lot bigger than the MC5 at that time, there was kind of a similar attitude. Free, free show in the park, who's playing those to the dead? You know, oh, maybe I'll go, you know, and, uh, but yeah, it was the, the hippie scene. By the time I got to California, the hippie scene was starting to peter out because a lot of hard drugs had come in, some violence. Um, it was not as pretty as it had looked in all the posters and so on. And then there was this long period throughout the seventies when it felt like everybody I knew was just searching for what's the next thing, what's going to happen. And, you know, we had a brief flourish of, uh, of glam rock, and that was fun and exciting. And, uh, and then all the art rock and prog rock of the mid-70s. But for, for me, and for a few people I knew, there was kind of a, a line straight from David Bowie to the New York Dolls to the Ramones to punk as we, as we know it. And, but it wasn't, you know, through all the mid-70s, it was kind of like, oh, my God nothing's happening, nothing's happening. And then while suddenly everything's happening. Were you, into, were you into that sort of first wave of punk? Then were you into the Ramones? Were you into the UK, the, the British stuff as well? Um, 
I I think I like the Ramones a little bit more, even though they're so like almost one dimensional. But then I feel like the Sex Pistols were as well. They they're just like we're we're really terrible. We hate everything. Blah blah blah. blah. I mean, seeing how Mr. Rotten has turned out in later life, um, you know, this funny thing in 1976, right? I think right before they started, it was early 76, I was in London in the King's Road and I was just wandering along and I, I looked into uh, Vivian Westwood's shop, the Sex Boutique, and she was in there with her orange hair and, and some skinny teenage boy um, sort of helping her arrange things. I've always wondered if that was was, was uh, Johnny Rotten in, in embryo before just before the band started. But I was scared to go in because it just was so weird. It was looked intriguing and cool, but it was so weird. <laughs> and so I just looked and looked, and then I walked away. And similarly, um, well, I used to stay in uh, Notting Hill at that time, and down the, uh, the the local where you would go to 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 buy hash, and you were allowed to smoke it from in the in the pub. At, uh, What's it, what was it called? Uh, it was in Lancaster, I think. It was, it was, really, it was near Ladbroke Grove, and I've known the oh, the Elgin, that's what it was. At any rate, yeah, uh, from you could buy your dope and smoke it, and, uh, and then uh, we go home, and I noticed the sign by the, the uh, door saying there was a gig by a group called the 101ers. And, and I said, I should check that out, but I never did. Yeah. So there's like two of my uh, early, I could have probably gotten into punk about a year or two earlier, uh, but because of my trepidation and like laziness and being stoned and stuff, I never, I, I never did. It wasn't until my, my brother came over to London later in 76, and when he came back to the U.S., he told me about the Sex Pistols and, and the Clash. You know, the Clash were from basically our neighborhood in London. Joe, Joe Strummer was lived on the next, next block over for years and years and years. Um, and I, I've never met him. I know every half the people I know know him, and I never did. I Like, literally, I have three minutes, maybe five minutes at most from, from my door, uh, from where I always stayed in London. And I've, in recent years, I've come to think of him as, as a gentrifier, actually, because my, my auntie had been living in that area for oh, 15 years, 20 years already, and and it had changed. It was starting to change a lot. It was mostly West Indians and hippies, and my auntie who was I don't know what, what she was uh, like a sixty year old hippie. Um, but um, then these kind of more middle class white kids started moving in and and to be hippies and and then punks and everything. Well, you've, I'm sure you've been in Iron Hill lately, as so. <laughs> it's really difficult to imagine what it looked like in the 1970s. It was just a falling down ruin. They were literally leveling all of the old Victorian houses to put up council houses, mm -hmm. and then the council ran out of money, so then they just left them there. And, you know, just rows and rows of squats. One bitterly ironic thing, my auntie got surfed out of her old Victorian because they said we're put into a council flat across the street. And they said, we're, we're going to knock down this whole block and you'll have a much nicer modern house. She loved her old Victorian house. Turned out they never knocked down that block. It's still there to this day. And 
one of the other members of the clash, what was his name? I, not not McJones, Paul but well, Yeah, I think it was Paul. Oh, per head. He he bought he bought a flat in that road. Like we could look down the road from the front of our <laughs> flat uh, to, and well, for a million pounds. <laughs> At one time, you know, literally half the people we knew lived in those flats for free. That's, that's um, madness. While they were waiting to be pulled down. What? So things change. I love that you have such an affinity with London. It's it's really it's really cool. I was living uh, I was living there when they were filming you know the movie Notting Hill, which kind of helped reinforce and cement all of those changes a uh, number of people i knew were extras in it and my, our friend brenda came they've just covered portobello road in snow so, which none of us had ever really seen in real life but she had just walked through the snow with, with hugh what's his hugh grant um but yeah everything changed after that really rapidly it just didn't feel like the same anymore when uh when i first came there in the mid 70s it felt like the end of the world in the, but in a nice way it felt like you know, this is like what the collapse of Western civilization is going to look like. Yeah, I think it's probably the same for a lot of London now, isn't it? It's um, yeah, un unrecognizable from what it from what it was. So, so go on, Larry. Let's let's sort of do the the money shot, so to speak. So you you're um <laughs> you're around sort of the, the the sort of Berkeley scene in the in the sort of um or around that area in the in the late eighties, mid eighties, late eighties. What, what's what's going on at that time and, and what sort of what is it that makes you be the person to kind of bring everything together i think i had an advantage of being older than most of the other people involved and i had an advantage of having lived through the the triumphs and the tragedies of previous movements and countercultures but there's a, there's an interesting side note because i had kind of given up on punk altogether by almost altogether by the uh, early 80s it just had become too violent and too stupid uh, as far as I saw it and I think other people agreed not but not all anyway that's when I moved up to the wilderness and said the hell I'm gonna just go live off the grid in my own kind of society I guess you know create my own civilization off in the wilderness and that's where I was for the mid 80s I started publishing my little uh, newsletter called Lookout, which became later a, a full-fledged magazine and spread all over the place. But at first, it was just for the local people up in the hills and in the small town and village nearby. And kind of didn't think that much about punk until one day I realized that if I went up on top of the highest mountain in the region, I, I could pick up the radio station from Berkeley to 200 miles to the south. And every Tuesday night, they broadcast Maximum Rock and Roll Radio. And I, when I discovered that, I was like, wow, oh, punk's still happening? This is about 1986, I would guess, uh, or maybe 85, 86. And I'm like, wow, this is, this is great. Some of this, you know, I didn't know that punk had moved on and was still developing. So I started getting in touch with those people. And that's when I started my band up there on the mountain with these two kids, and literally kids, teenage Barely, you know, Trey was only 12. And gradually we, I, we got connected to the, uh, the scene down in the Bay Area and got to play a few shows. And it was at one of those shows that a bunch of us said, wow, this was really excellent. There was no violence, there was no police, there was no, no problems. Let's find a place where we can do this all the time. And that's when Gilman Street began, really at that May 29th, 1986. 
specify the date. I still have the, the flyer from the show where it was a Mr. T experience and the little goats and the victim's family and complete disorder and no means no from Canada. And it's literally, we stood around the front door at the end, not wanting the night to end and said, let's find a place. And within weeks, uh, Kamala Parks, one of the young people who had organized the gig, found what now is Gilman Street. And and, you know, it just grew really rapidly from there. It took a year to get the club off the ground, but once it did, it was... There's a, a famous sociological book called uh, Free Spaces, where the authors theorize that any underground or progressive movement has to have some kind of free space where it can, like, grow on its own accord without interference from the outside. Like he, uh, they cite the, the black churches, for example, in America during the pre-civil rights area, where it was the only place that black people could get together and, and talk and interact without white racists uh, bothering them. Similarly, the, the women had a um, thing called the temperance society where they were trying to abolish booze, which you might not be in favor of, but it did give the women a chance to talk on their own without men interfering. And that is what, morphed into the women's suffrage movement and the women's liberation movement. And so basically that's to me what how it worked for Gilman Street. These were not people on the cutting edge of the punk scene or of any scene. They were mostly kind of, you know, just regular kids. The what punk scene there had been around uh, that part of California was mostly centered in San Francisco and it, it had run out of steam and run into a lot of alcohol and drug abuse and just wasn't really that didn't really have the, you know, the, what it had had in the 70s. It just, and so suddenly because this space, it was kind of like this, this, this big warehouse, well, a small warehouse really, but it was, it reminded me of when I was a, a kid and one of the, one of our friends, their parents would say, okay, you kids can just take over. You can hang out in the, in the rec room in the basement. And that, that's just your territory. You can do what you want down there. And that's kind of what Gilman Street was like. Anybody wanted to be in a band or put on some other kind of act or show, yeah, they were welcome to do it. And no, nobody would tell them no, or at least they wouldn't laugh at them too much, even if it was awful. And it be quickly, it quickly became evident that some of these groups were really talented. And that's when it just kind of clicked in my head. Well, somebody's got to put these things on record. You know, if it's not me, who's going to be in there? Well, it didn't seem to be anybody else. So. Seems like a bit of a risk going from. It was a one of the more idiotic risks I have <laughs> taken in my life. Uh, I mean, kind of like going off to live in the mountains in the wilderness without knowing anything about country life because I always lived in cities. And similarly, going into the music business without knowing anything about the music business. Yeah. <laughs> and essentially, I had only a, a few thousand dollars left of my. That's all I had left in the world, and. Most, as you probably know, most punk labels go broke sooner or later. It's often sooner. So the most likely outcome was that I was going to put the last of my savings into this adventure and they were going to disappear and everybody would laugh at me and nobody would ever... And my dad laughed at me. In fact, he said, I said, Dad, there's these kids that are really talented. I'm going to put out a record by them. And he said, oh, that's a stupid idea. They'll all graduate from high school and go to college and forget all about you. And, uh, you know, from, <clears throat> it was funny because that, from then on, I would always try to get my dad to say that's a stupid idea about any 
what I thought was a good idea. If he, if he said it was a super idea, it's like, hmm, maybe there's some potential there. I mean, that's, I mean, yeah, when you, when you consider what obviously a lot of those bands went on to do, that's, um, I mean, what do you, what do you put it down to? I mean, obviously the, the talent, was there a, a bit of luck or was it a bit of sort of luck in terms of the timing? How aware, how aware are you at this point of this kind of emerging and, and growing punk rock scene across the whole of the States? Like how aware are you of, of what's going on in New York, of um, stuff in Chicago, of Black Flag, of, of that sort of scene and network? Well, I mean, we knew about all that stuff, but, you know, I guess it was the arrogance of youth, even though I was not so much so young anymore, but we were sure beyond a doubt that our scene was way better than any of those. <clears throat> we did not like the hardcore scene of New York because it was just like very violent and, and very xenophobic and kind of racist and kind of sexist. And, and the LA scene was very, it was okay, but it was very commercial, and they didn't make any bones about wanting to get on a label and make lots of money. And in in San Francisco and Berkeley, you weren't supposed to, even if you wanted to, you weren't supposed to admit to it. So we we thought we were special, uh, and at the same time, we didn't expect anything much to come out of it. Uh, like the East Bay is very different from San Francisco. It's mostly working well. Then it, it was mostly working class and reminded me a lot of Detroit. It's just like people had a chip on their shoulders. The people, the fancy people over in San Francisco referred to the East Bay as East Berlin because it was, you know, they'd say, oh, I'd never go over there to East <laughs> Berlin. It's just so dreary. Um, so, yeah, we didn't think that much would come out of it. I, I, I hoped on one level that I would sell enough records to break even and get my money back. And that would be a big success. Um, but there was something beneath the surface that I barely dared to acknowledge or say out loud, but some sense much deeper within told me that this was going to be a big deal. I, I kind of knew it right from the start, from the first day that I said to Operation Ivy, do you guys want to make a record? I, I, I kind of said, I just, I don't know. I, when I did start to say anything about it, People would get angry with me because they would say, that sounds like you're trying to commercialize it. Or my first partner in Lookout, David Hayes, he got very angry because he didn't even like talking about stuff like that. And I was like, but we have to consider the possibility and prepare for it. Otherwise, we'll just be overwhelmed and not do a good job. So my plan right from the beginning was, well, if people want to buy a thousand records, then we'll make a thousand records. They want to buy a million records, we'll make a million. It's really just a matter of scale. And I sensed that, I, well, part of, I said, this music is the best thing going on right now, so therefore it should be like popular everywhere, much, much better than what's on the radio or in the clubs. And yet, you know, I had seen other great bands go by the wayside in the past, so eh, I didn't count on it. You know, and I had that same feeling again about a year later when I asked Green Day to make their first record. I, I just... I said, this band is just like the best thing I've seen since the 60s, at least. Uh, they, they could be like filling stadiums. And, you know, and this was in a room with like six people. <laughs> and that's what they just played. Five, five kids plus the three members of the Lookouts. That was, that was the whole audience. And uh, I just knew. I didn't know that it would happen, but I knew that 
it, des it deserved to happen and should happen. And as ironically, after uh, I don't I don't tend to believe you mentioned luck, and I don't tend to to believe in luck. Um, that's kind of like just everything just happens for no reason. Just like you know whether you know this guy puts out a million selling record, this guy has a building fall on him in an earthquake, and you know it's all for it all means nothing. I don't know. Have you guys seen this? Somebody just uh, showed me the a, a new video and song by NoFX today. Have you? It's it's like basically the history of the world in cartoon form while the NoFX song plays. It's called uh, I think the Long Drag or the Big Drag. It's really impressive. I was never like a huge fan. I mean, I've seen them. I've only seen them once way back in 1988, and when they Operation Ivy opened for them, and I was just mad. How come Operation I, Ivy has to open for this band I never heard of before? And um, I really, I've, I've really never seen them since, and heard, only heard a few of their songs. But this really impressed me because of the, the cartoon artwork. Because apparently, a, a, a couple of sisters from the Ukraine did listen to the song and did a whole animated story to go with it, with illustrations of uh, of the band and so on. And, but it also shows them moving all through the begin from the beginning of the earth up to modern times, and the origins of religion and philosophy. It's like heavy stuff. It's like I never really thought of NoFX as that kind of band. It's kind of, it's more on a line of uh, like the prog rock back in the '70s, where they would have these big symphonic uh, orchestral kind of concept albums, where they would try to explain cosmic stuff and everything. It was like that. And, but the one thing I differed with, it, it seemed, the, the main thrust of it seemed to be that uh, nothing ever changes and, and nothing really ever means anything, and which is pretty much opposite to what, what I believe. Um, you know, I, I believe that, well, you can even see it in the art of the, of the video because it's constant change. It, like, it shows the whole evolution of history. Well, that's change. And, you know, as to whether it matters or not, well... We don't know until we've had hundreds, thousands of years of history as to how much one thing really mattered or didn't matter. But, you know, things do change and things overall, I would like to think, get better. I mean, even from, from the time of my childhood, there were far more people starving to death and far more people that just had no hope or chance of ever changing or doing, making, having a different kind of life. You know, in the, in those 50, 60 years, some of that has changed. And some of that changed because one person, you know, whether that person was a flawed or imperfect person or what their motives might have been, because they did and said certain things that, you know, stuff changed. You know, I think of, uh, you know, you could think of some of our American political leaders like uh, John F. Kennedy, you know, was in my childhood. You know, we just thought he was so awesome. Us kids thought he was so awesome because he looked like a kid and he talked like a kid. He, and when he spoke, he didn't just say, I'm going to win the election and give everybody a, a free turkey. He was like, he spoke in big concepts about what the what living on Earth was about and what we as a society should be doing. You know, and a lot of it might have been complete BS. As we got older, we learned more about his private life, and so well, he was kind of shady, and he had, all, you know, he did a lot of things that were not admirable. But that language, that inspired a whole generation uh, to say, "What? Well, yeah, what can we do that that could make this world more awesome or less terrible?" And when he got shot down, 
it was, I think that was what kicked off the 60s. It was like this whole group of, of kids that were now getting into teenage and university years, like going like, wait, we had all these incredible visions. And as soon as he started to do anything, they shot him. And, and that's, I think, when the idealism of, idealism of the 60s of, you know, folk songs and civil rights marches and peaceful uh, protests, I think that's when it turned into like, we'll, we'll destroy society, we'll, we'll, sh we'll show them. And, you know, that's somebody that said something and did something and it, and it changed everything. And, you know, obviously probably none of us three are, not, are, are likely to do anything maybe quite that big, but what we do every day is important. I mean, what, how we treat our, our fellow humans, like, you know, we're rude to somebody or bump somebody on the bus as opposed to go out of our way to help somebody. That's going to that's gonna change a lot of things. That person might one of us, go yeah, one way and go become a, a psycho killer or another way and become a great humanitarian based on just that one, in, in that one encounter. Uh, it, it sounds a little, you know, woo-woo, but I, to, my, to my view, <clears throat> that's, that's, that's how life works. And, sounds you know, a life, a life lived consciously um, is very well worth living. And, you know, the minute, the minute we stop cultivating what it is to be human and what we can do to be a better human, that's the, the minute we start, start to die, and deservedly so. You've almost got a, well, a very philosophical Oh, I thought you were going to accuse me of being a cult leader. <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, there's obviously some, some. you've thought about this sort of stuff a long time. I like the fact that you say the three of us aren't going to maybe do quite as much. Maybe. We don't know that. So you guys are still quite young. One of us has, has released Green Day onto the world. So that's probably, you know, probably something bigger than the other two. But um, you shouldn't shouldn't belittle yourself. I don't call that belittling. I have no, I, I really don't. Because, yeah, it's <clears throat> it's kind of a big thing that like this, multi-million selling band got to be popular and I might have played some part in it and I don't know if they would have done it without me or not no, nobody can know but how important that is in the overall scheme of things eh, I don't know maybe 100 or 200 years from now we'll know I would say it's important I think for me music inspires so much and people get so much inspiration you know from music and like Rancid said music lives forever you know and it resonates with us all and if that you no know, that carries us through good times, bad times, or whatever times, you know, that's, that can only be a positive, surely. I'd expand that to say not just music, but all all art forms, yeah, all, all forms of human expression. Because basically, at least as I understand art, music of any kind, it's an attempt to find what's what's in the deepest recesses of our heart and soul, and express it in such a way that other people can understand it. To, to build a bridge to, to share our experience with other people so that they can say, oh, that guy or that woman is going through some stuff that I went through and so therefore we're, we're connected and you know we're not like these isolated little islands. So I've, I've always had a real bone to pick really with these people who say, I don't play my music or do my art for anybody else, it's just for me. And I'm like, you know, that's like masturbation. Really, it is. If you're not like trying to connect, if you're not trying to essentially make love with your fellow creatures and uh, and love in the con uh, more cosmic sense, 
And that you're not you're not an artist. You're just goofing off and jerking off in the in the basement. And uh, you know, I don't care how how much money you make for doing it or how famous you get. Um, you know, to me, art is really about building bridges and making connections to to help people to to illuminate and to help people to understand the human condition, what it is to be human, and say, well, you know, not that bad being human. In fact can be pretty awesome if you put some thought into it. Um, I've got a couple of really quick questions that you don't have to spend too long on, but I'm just genuinely interested. Of all the Lookout bands, um, we've all got our favourites. Uh, I'm, I'm a really big Crimp Shrine and later 15 fan as well. But um, what was the band that you feel didn't quite get the, uh, the kind of cut that some of the other bands on the label did? What band should have got bigger, do you think? Um, well, I'd like to say Brent's TV, but because they were so quirky and unusual, it was very unlikely they were ever going to get to be very famous. I would have liked for them to be heard by a few more people, but realistically that probably was not going to happen. I'm just happy that their music is preserved for people to hear in the future. But Nuisance uh, is, a, is a band that I, Nuisance and Brent's TV were my proudest moments. I mean, Operation Ivy and Green Day, sure, that's obvious. Of course, they need to have records, and you don't need to be a genius to, to put, put their records out. Um, but Nuisance and Brent's TV, they were both representative of a very local, very specific culture in Northern California, and that would have been completely overlooked and forgotten if I hadn't managed to step in. And Nuisance... It's kind of a, a sad thing to me because they were really, really gifted and really, really unique. But this was right around the time of Nirvana, and they had a certain kind of similarity. I mean, to my mind, they were much, much better and more creative than Nirvana. But they, instead of pursuing their own identity, they started trying to be like Nirvana, like the next Nirvana, which almost never works. Mm. Maybe, maybe except for the Foo Fighters. I, I don't know. <laughs> I've never really listened to them that much, but I can't seem to escape them at the same time. But Nuisance's uh, first record was a classic. Their second sounded a lot. It came out around the time, the same time that the Nirvana guy, Nirvana guy topped himself on. And so it was kind of overlooked. They had, they had a couple songs that fit right in with that sound, but I wish I could have had a little... Some bands actually asked me for input and suggestions. Others didn't, and they were one of those that didn't. I wish sometimes that I could have had a little bit more input and said, no, no, be yourselves. You know, explore that really special uniqueness that you had on the, on the first record. Don't try to be more like the other bands that are making it big on college radio, because there's, there's always going to be plenty of those. There's only, gonna, there's only one nuisance. My last um, quick one before Dave takes over. If there was a band from that era, or was there a band that you missed out on signing, or a band that you wish you had got onto Lookout Records? I, I wish Rancid had stayed with us, um, but I was a little ambivalent about them at first. Um, Tim and I had a blazing row about when they, they wanted to put a gun, a pistol on the cover of their first album. And I said, no, that's just not a good message. And he was like, oh, you, Larry, you don't know what it's like on the streets. And I'm like, Tim, you just moved out of your parents' house in, in this like middle-class suburb. And 
and you chose to move down to South Berkeley where it's a little bit rough, you know, you're not walking around with a gun. Um, and I don't think you're ever going to, but, you know, at any rate, I didn't get, I didn't totally get this, like, tough guy, uh, thug kind of thing, maybe because I'd been through it before and seen a lot of people come to a bad end as a result. And that was part of the reason. There were other things, too, but I felt really sad that they decided to leave Lookout and go to Epitaph, although, you know, it's a good move for them in terms of getting their music heard. I, I think we would have done a good job too, but we didn't, and we didn't get that. We didn't get that opportunity. I also wish Green Day would have stayed with us at least a while longer, because I had a, my goal was to build from the ground up into as big a label as needed to be, so eventually nobody would ever have to go to a major label if, if they didn't want to. You know, Epitaph did a better job of that, although they're, they're a little bit more in bed with the majors, but they still managed to maintain a high degree of independence. And I, I felt, that, you know, obviously Brett was a better businessman than, than I was and a bit better capitalized. But, he, he, you know, he, he saw, I had a long conversation with, with uh, Brett Gerwitz once about this, but he saw business as an art form in itself, you know, he in addition to being a, a gifted uh, musician. You know, he had literally studied marketing and, and the, the, especially uh, Japanese business. And so, you know, this is, my, this is my art. I'm probably better at business than I am at music. And, and, I, and I love doing it. Where I, I never was. Business was just something that you did in order to get something, get things done in order to let the music be heard. So, um, you know, after about 10 years, I just kind of, it was not thrilling anymore. It was more tedious. I did not want to be sit, sat in an office all the time and feeling phone calls and dealing with agents and managers and all. None of that we had to deal with. And it, for the first seven years, it was just me and then a couple of other guys in, in my in my bed set. Um, it was just a one, one room where I, you could reach pretty much everything from wherever you were sat. And... My, my blankets rolled up in the corner for when the business day started and uh, no kitchen, no, no, well, we did have a fridge, but it was full of old, old uh, tapes. I, I just saw a photo recently where I'm like, wait, I never had a fridge at the old, at the, at the old lookout place. And they said, yeah, you did. It was, it was full of all uh, real to real tapes from all the, but it never, it never kept any food in it. <laughs> amazing um, so one one question that we ask all our guests that people tend to struggle with is just is about what your favorite band is obviously music's very vast in taste and sounds and emotions but what for you, you know, is your is your favorite band if you had to name one or two or three mm. well when you've lived as long as i have that's a that's a pretty difficult uh question and i you know generally when i if I if somebody asks me that and they happen to be a parent, I say, well, which of your children is the famous is the, is your favorite? Um, and they all got their points. And usually, you don't want to get rid of any of them. Although I know some children that I'd make an exception for. Um, so it would be more like probably at different points in my life, you know. Um, just in the in the fifties and early sixties, it would be just doo-wop in general, all of them. 
the kind of harmony, you know, that you can kind of hear that in the, the bands I favored on Lookout, like the harmonies. Um, you know, in the 60s, it was the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. You had to go back and forth. You know, people would fight over who that was. And then in the later 60s, I, I liked the Jefferson Airplane and um, a bunch of those hippie acid rock bands because I was always high on acid. And then I liked the Ramones and the, uh, um, oh gosh, yeah, I liked, I got to see The Clash when they were still good uh, in 1979. Uh, on the teetering on the brink of not being good anymore, but they were still great. They did a benefit show um, in a in old in an old uh, church or temple, actually a Jewish temple. And but favorite band, I, I would have to say the band who did best all around, just to man do the art and just uh, stay true to their vision and be awesome would probably be the weaker bands. If I, if I had to do my life over and be in the right kind of band, I would probably shoot for something like that. The guy, the guy is a poet. The, all, all of the musicians are just brilliant musicians. And for four albums, they just managed to put it all together. And people love them for, with good reason. That's amazing. I think it's had two people now um, prior to you have stated the Weaker Ends as being their favorite band. I'm guilty because I haven't heard much of them at all. So I'll definitely need to check them out. I'll, I know John's just shaking his head, looking at me disappointingly, but yeah. They're not for everybody. I have to say that, you know, they, they did well, but they didn't become superstars. Um, they might never have done, but they did what they set out to do. And it reached a lot of people and touched a lot of people. Yeah, so check them out. You may like them. So John, how do you like your philosophy? Uh, like I like my women. <laughs> what, what kind of question is that? <laughs> Philosophical chat. Okay. Um, I, feel like, um, I feel like Larry wanted us to go down that route a bit more than we when we did, but um, I hope he had fun. I mean, it's a punk rock podcast, so we have to kind of do the punk rock stuff, but I felt another day we could have still, you know, really gone down that kind of philosophical um, and kind of that, that kind of history and culture route. But um Larry, if you're listening, I hope it was fun for you. I hope you didn't mind. Well, I hope you had a good time. I, I really had a lovely time chatting to him. He had so much to tell. And again, I could sit, you know, for another hour just listening to him speak about his, you know, his life, life journey and his experiences. You know, it's so many funny stories, so many insightful stories. And he's so well-traveled, you know, um, how he left, the, you know, left to move around the States and then um, went to Singapore, China, visited Walthamstow. <laughs> Yeah, that guy's travels. He's been around. So, yeah. And obviously he's got a, a good affinity with London. So that's, that's great. Obviously, um, he he must get this a lot, but there's probably very few people that have impacted the world of, of punk rock that we've grown up with quite as much as as, as him. Um, and I know a lot of people would agree with that. So it was a, a genuine pleasure to speak with him and to talk about football a little bit as well, which is always very nice. Um, Dave, uh what do people need to do and where do people need to go if they want to listen to more of this sort of stuff? Email us at prapodcast at gmail.com. They can go to our Twitter at prapodcast or they can visit our Instagram account at Punk Rock Academy Podcast. And John, they can join the conversation on our Facebook page. Um, we've got a lot of chat going on there. Lots of funny pictures and memes and that's not really that funny, is it really? Uh, but yeah, that's what I can do. Great. Thank you. 
Take care. Bye-bye. My name is Larry Livermore and uh, I do a little bit of this and a little bit of that and not much else and you've been listening to the Punk Rock Academy podcast.